Welcome back to the Church's True Faith Crisis and Reconstruction podcast series. I'm Rob Terry. Today's episode is on the New Testament, and we will talk about different ideas and beliefs about God. This is the episode I've been thinking about the most and studying about the most and praying about the most. I really hope that we can have a good discussion here. This is a very difficult subject. I put this last partly because this was chronologically the last for me to deconstruct. I went through kind of the traditional LDS issues first, and then the Old Testament. And then I kind of put off, I think, exploring the New Testament because I was worried. There's this idea that a lot of people that study the New Testament, especially scholars, end up losing their testimony. And I loved Jesus Christ. I had a personal relationship with my Savior. I still do. I think I put the study off so that I wouldn't disrupt that. And like the other issues, studying the New Testament in more detail, the way scholars look at it, or at least trying to, did lead to a deconstruction of many of those ideas, but then also a reconstruction into a testimony of Jesus Christ and a belief in God that is just as vibrant and sustaining as ever, I believe. So let's get into it. I'm obviously not a New Testament scholar, and these issues are very complicated, and I will do my best to explain them. I'm probably going to butcher them a little bit, just like I did with the Old Testament, but I hope I can at least give a picture that's generally correct. I've gotten my information from Bart Ehrman. There's a series from Yale professor Dale Martin on YouTube that's good. Those two sources are very difficult because they're coming from a non-believing standpoint, and so it's challenging to process their material. But then also I've processed material from believing Christian scholars, Marcus Borg, John Dominic Crossan. They're believing, although they may believe a little bit differently, and then also processing LDS scholars like Thomas Wayment, Trevin Hatch, Julie Smith, Jared Anderson. Special thanks to BYU Professor Trevin Hatch and Jared Anderson, who took personal time to answer some of my questions. This episode is dedicated to Latter-day Saints who have deconstructed their views on the New Testament and God to a point where it's very difficult to believe. So with that in mind, I am going to present material that is geared toward that audience. So if you're listening to this and you're coming from a very believing standpoint, it may sound like I'm lacking faith in this episode, and I'm sorry, but I'm trying to piece together this the best I can for the audience who have basically completely lost their testimony. I did go there in my deconstruction, and I think that I've learned some things in my reconstruction that can help make sense for this audience. I think it's an important perspective to share to a certain segment of Latter-day Saints who are struggling with faith crisis and on these issues. Thomas Wayman is a BYU professor. He is a brilliant scholar that I look up to for his intellectualism and his faith. I think he addresses these issues very honestly and openly, and I appreciate him for it. Find as much from Thomas Wayman as you can. He did an interview with Terrell Givens on the Faith Matters podcast, and he sets the stage of the problem and gives potential solution in this quote. I started to compartmentalize. I think it's a coping strategy that so many young grad students use to say, I don't understand that right now. Put that on the shelf. But it quickly became apparent to me that I had a whole room. 
in this room, I had to close the door and I had to kind of exist in a world where I believed, but I also had these things that I couldn't deal with at the time. One of the challenges to me as a Bible scholar is that Mormonism has promoted a very clear historical narrative for how Bible works, how the Old Testament works, etc. I think people wrestle with faith when they find out that history doesn't fit that narrative well. I think we need to get away from the idea that if Book of Mormon's historicity is different than we thought, if the New Testament Jesus is a little different than we thought, that we somehow can't have faith in that, that faith and history are the same. So that sounds a lot like the paradigm I've been preaching this whole time, that we have this kind of dominant narrative, whitewashed history. That's how a lot of histories are taught in and out of this church. Then we learn about the history, and we learn that it's a little bit different. And then we have a few choices. We can reject these facts and say it's just anti-Mormon lies. We can reject our faith and say it's tied to this BS history that's not true and I'm out. Or we can attempt to process it and, and struggle with it and come up with a paradigm where we accept what we feel like is the best scientific knowledge and scholarship, but then we also retain the best of our faith from what the Holy Ghost has taught us is true. First, let's set up the traditional view of the New Testament. The Gospels were written first. They were written by eyewitnesses. Matthew wrote Matthew, Mark wrote Mark, Mark John wrote John, etc. Maybe there's a little bit of oral history in between the time of Jesus and the time they were written, but not much, and that these stories are definitely connected immediately. They're all literally true. That the books are written by the author that said it was written in the time that we expect it to, that there's a very organized church that Jesus organized. There's clear doctrine that Jesus taught his apostles and that those apostles went and continued to teach a consistent, clear doctrine, and that our concept of the apostasy and restoration is that that went away, and then Joseph Smith restored to us what that original structure and ordinances and teachings and priesthood authority, and it was all the same as that original church that Jesus taught. Then you read this scholarship that I referenced in the beginning, and it feels like the story is a lot different. Let's get into now a scholarly view of Jesus and the New Testament. First question is, did Jesus even exist? That is a question today, and I think scholars overwhelmingly say that, yes, Jesus absolutely did exist, and no reputable scholars will try to reject that. If you took the consensus of scholars on who Jesus likely was, this is what is generally agreed on, I believe. Jesus was a Jew, that he was crucified around 33 AD, he most likely was viewed as a prophet within the Jewish tradition, a radical who was reforming Judaism, who focused on establishing the kingdom of God and emphasized teachings of love, mercy, forgiveness, but then also teachings of obedience, sacrifice, good works, and justice. That He was most likely involved with John the Baptist. He had disciples. He was involved with the controversy at the temple. That he was most likely viewed as a threat for political stability by both the Romans and Jewish leaders, and he was crucified by the order of Pontius Pilate. That doesn't preclude the idea that Jesus could be a lot more than that, but that's the scholarly consensus at a minimum of what Jesus likely was as a historical figure. That core is agreed on by most scholars. And then from there, we go into the writings of the early Christian leaders. The first gospel that came was Mark, 
that came around 65 to 70 AD. It was written in Greek. It was written by someone who was not an eyewitness of Jesus's life. It was not Mark in the New Testament. Mark's gospel, the whole thing lasts less than a year. We think of the ministry of Jesus taking three years, but Mark begins with Jesus' baptism and ends with the week in Jerusalem and his crucifixion. The ending of Mark is interesting in that the original ending ended with Mark chapter 16, verse 8, that was kind of a surprise ending that the tomb is empty. And then the rest of Mark, where you had witnesses to the resurrected Jesus, that was added on a couple hundred years later. Matthew is the next gospel that came about 10 years later, 75 to 80. And Luke also came about in the same time period or maybe later. What scholars believe Matthew and Luke were doing, they had two sources available, they think. They had Mark, because they're repeating Mark in a way that's obvious that they had the gospel of Mark and they were repeating it. And then they also had another source that seems obvious that they were using because they were quoting another source because there's overlap where both Matthew and Luke used and quoted this other source. And this source is known as Q. What scholars believe Q is, is a text that was written that probably predates Mark that was the first Christian text that was simply a book of sayings. Jesus was known for teaching in two different styles. Aphorisms, which are like one-liners, like, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, or Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. These are aphorisms. And then also parables. And so Q is believed to be a source that contained all of Jesus' sayings, all of his teachings, these aphorisms and parables. But most likely not any narrative, not, not any storyline of, of the things that Jesus was doing, just simply his teachings. And then Mark was the first text that added narrative. And then Luke and Matthew took Q and took Mark to further develop these stories and narrative into the Gospels that we have now. It's very possible that these narratives existed in oral format all through these three decades after Jesus died up until Mark was written. But it's just unknown exactly how much these stories and narrative was known and told and shared in the Christian community. Trevin Hatch, BYU professor that wrote a book, Strangers in Jerusalem, and he's doing a YouTube series that has a lot of good information. Trevin Hatch makes a point that the Gospels are using Old Testament passages and fitting these Old Testament passages into the New Testament narrative. For example, in Matthew 27, 35, and also in Luke and John, the people divided his clothes among themselves by casting lots. And that is a quote of Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, that says, They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Hatch gives a couple of theories of how this might happen. One is possibly a more skeptical view, which is that the writers of the New Testament wanted to prove that the Old Testament prophecies were concerning Jesus Christ. And so they used lots of Old Testament passages all through the narrative that they were writing to embed Old Testament prophecies to make it show that Jesus is the culmination of these prophecies. But then another more faithful traditional religious view might be that God is orchestrating this in a way that God is inspiring the author of Psalms to write in this way and then orchestrating the, the actual narrative of, in Jesus' life so that it plays out 
so that these prophecies are true. Thomas Wayman talks about this idea of Mark quoting another source, that Mark's Greek is not very good. He's got some grammar issues. But then when he's quoting this other source and giving the sayings of Jesus, it's a different type of Greek. He says, but then when he quotes Jesus, there's a different tone of the Greek. It's a different way he writes it. I guess I hadn't really seen first person this idea that there were the sayings of Jesus and Mark has access to those and he adopts those, but he's clearly writing the story to linearly develop that. Matthew comes along, obviously, and says, I don't really think you got the linear order quite right. I think it needs to be revised. And then Luke goes even further. That really drove home to me that there's a sense that the sayings of Jesus are what this is about. But now they're trying to make sense of those. Another point that kind of illustrates this is in one of our Book of Mormon episodes when we talked about how BYU Professor Royal Skousen said that he sees the Sermon on the Mount as a conglomeration, meaning the Sermon on the Mount might not be a literal event that happened exactly the way that it's written in the New Testament and likewise in the Book of Mormon, but that it's a conglomeration of sayings that were injected into a storyline that may or may not have happened the way that they did on the Sermon on the Mount. Then we have John. John comes in even later, around 90, 95 AD, and John is really interesting. In Mark, Matthew, and Luke, Jesus is called the Son of God, and he performs miracles, but he doesn't call himself the Messiah in public, only in private to the apostles, and this is called the Messianic Secret. But then in John, he is openly pronouncing himself as God. Right off the bat, Jesus is the Word, and the Word was made flesh. He says, I am that I am. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The points of the parables in the synoptic gospels, they call Mark, Matthew, and Luke the synoptic gospels because they're very similar. The point of the parables in those gospels is to share teachings and doctrine and to point to how to live righteously and what's the right way to understand the world and to live. The point of the parables in John is to show that he is God, to testify that he's the Son of God. He talks to the woman at the well and ends the story with, I am living water. That's the Jesus in John, and it's very different. And this is why Nick Frederick, in our previous episode in the Book of Mormon, talks about how the Jesus in the Book of Mormon is a Joannine Jesus. It's a very high Christology Jesus. 90% of John is unique. He didn't do the same technique that Matthew and Luke did of kind of copying other sources. Some of the events in John are a little different. For example, Jesus was crucified on a Thursday, not a Friday, because at 6 p.m. on Thursday night, the week of the Passover, is when the lambs are slain in the temple. And the author of John wants to make the point that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice by correlating those two events. John also makes a point to really poke fun at the apostles and show that they didn't understand. The reason is that Jesus is pronouncing himself the Son of God over and over, but the apostles just obviously don't get it because when he dies, they're not understanding the point of his death and crucifixion and resurrection. They're not understanding any of it. So John is really poking fun at the apostles here and there, kind of displaying how dumb they are to not understand this. Thomas Wayman says, I think Mormonism, but most faith traditions believe Jesus has a continual view of atonement in mind from day one as a 12-year-old young man. And maybe even earlier that, from Luke 2 forward, he knows that, that he has his father's mission in mind. You look at the historical Jesus, and he may have been crucified unaware. 
Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, on the cross might be, why didn't you rescue me from this cross? Is it possible that Jesus did save mankind, redeemed mankind, but was not fully aware of where it was going? Here, Thomas Weymouth is suggesting that maybe not just the apostles, but even Jesus didn't understand fully what was happening. He goes on, I just remember still even the class where it happened where my professor said simply, Eli, Eli, Smaktani is frustration. My God, my God, why have you left me alone here? It's a cry of, God, I thought the millennium happened now. I thought redemption was you taking me down. I don't think so many people ever think, was Jesus as surprised by Easter as Mary was? That's a really powerful nuance. And you become very aware of this in New Testament studies. The Gospels are not as sanitized as you would expect. They leave a lot of remnants of the historical Jesus navigating his own experience. Next is Paul. Paul is a fascinating person. He was a Roman citizen who grew up in the diaspora. You can think of the diaspora as like the mission field. There's a core of Latter-day Saints in Utah on the Wasatch Front, but then the majority of Latter-day Saints actually live outside in other parts of America and across the world internationally. And just like that, in Jesus' time, about a third of Jews lived in Israel, and then two-thirds lived out in other places across the Roman world. Paul was raised outside of Israel. He was a Roman citizen. He had an education both in his Jewish religion, but then also likely in Greek philosophy and in generic Roman-era thought. You think about the phrase mingling scripture with philosophy and I think it's hard to think of Paul outside of that concept, that he might have been the originator of one who was mingling scripture with Greek philosophy, and I think in a beautiful way. Speaking of this concept of Greek philosophy, John 1, John opens up with that amazing, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and Word is Logos. So in the beginning, the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God, and the Logos became flesh. This idea of Logos is very fascinating and very difficult to understand. You could translate Logos as word, order, logic, wisdom, organization, knowledge, discourse. It was a word that was just steeped with Greek philosophy, and you had to understand Greek philosophy to even understand what this Logos was even trying to convey. And thousands of people have given their own interpretation of what the author of John meant when he was saying that the Logos was God and the Logos became Jesus Christ. Thomas Wayman says this about this Logos thing. God is sitting on his throne and someone holds a mirror to his face. And when God looks in the mirror, he sees the logo. He sees his word. That word becomes Jesus Christ kind of interesting. Okay, so back to Paul. Paul was interacting with Christians, and he was persecuting them, and then he had a vision of Jesus and saw a light and heard his voice and was converted to Christianity. This was probably sometime in the late 30s, not more than a few years after Jesus was crucified. And then, obviously, Paul became a great missionary and wrote so much and, and really shaped Christianity as we know it. His letters came starting in the year about 50 AD and through the 50s. So they actually came before Mark. 
And what's really interesting is that Paul does not talk about the life of Jesus Christ in any of his letters. His focus is completely on the post-Easter Jesus, on the resurrected Jesus. That's the Jesus that he knew. That's the Jesus that he interacted with. And he seems to think that the Jesus before Easter was almost irrelevant. He doesn't reference any of Jesus' teachings. His letters don't overlap with the content in the Gospels. And also the Gospels don't overlap a lot with what he was teaching, where he is fleshing out these really complex doctrines of atonement, fall, resurrection, sin, sanctification, justification. The Gospels don't really incorporate a lot of that. There obviously is atonement and resurrection and sin in the Gospels, but it's just not fleshed out like Paul does. Paul's writings are hard to understand, and a lot of his writings are very specific instructions to the communities that he visited, and so they shouldn't really be taken as global explanations for Christian doctrine. But especially from Romans and across his other letters, we can get an idea of his gospel. And my, my summary of Paul's gospel is that Christ died for us as a sacrifice. He was resurrected. When we have faith in Christ, which is more of a trust or the concept of orienting your entire life towards Jesus Christ, he uses the phrase in Christ 164 times. Jesus taught about the kingdom of God, and his teachings seem to be more action-oriented, but Paul doesn't really talk about that. Paul talks about living in Christ, and I think that's what we talk about living with the Holy Ghost and it's a daily walk. When we live in Christ, we experience a transformation into becoming like him. And there's also the genesis of the theosis doctrine of becoming like God, where this is something that we're actually inheriting power of God and a transformation takes place as we live this life in Christ. Okay, so we have faith in Christ. We're walking, we live a life in Christ. We are saved. And this supersedes the law of Moses. So the law of Moses is done away, and this is the new covenant. From Romans, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption, that is in Christ Jesus. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. So then there's a question, you know, what does Paul think about works? Is Paul all about grace and no works? And I think Paul would say that with a life in Christ, with the covenant in Christ, comes a Christian discipleship where there's an expectation and a desire to live properly and do good works. And that being freed by sin, we now choose to do good. Again from Romans, What shall ye say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And then, being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. That reminds me of that Easton Eden quote, now that you don't have to be perfect, you can be good. Marcus Borg on Paul. Paul never mentions that Jesus' tomb was empty. Is this because Paul took it for granted that affirming Jesus' resurrection meant that of course Jesus' tomb was empty? Or is it because for Paul, the resurrection of Jesus was not about something spectacular happening to the corpse of Jesus, In either case, the resurrection of Jesus mattered utterly to Paul. For him, it meant Jesus lives and Jesus is Lord, and he lives and is Lord 
because God vindicated him against the powers that had crucified him. To vindicate means to say yes to what Jesus was doing and no to this world, the world that crucified him. This is the heart of Paul's experience and thought. If you're coming from a traditional LDS standpoint, it may feel like Borg is kind of manipulating things to, to kind of go along with his view that he doesn't believe in a literal resurrection. And I think by default that the scriptures are teaching us that resurrection is literal. I think that certainly is the case. But I think what Borg is saying is that there's also room for an alternate interpretation of that. And that the meaning of resurrection and life in Christ was a here and now kind of thing. We die through baptism and we're born again and we're resurrected again and we have a life in Christ in the here and now. Then we have a lot of letters in the New Testament that are attributed to Paul that likely weren't Paul, like First uh, and Second Timothy and Hebrews. We have James, which likely wasn't written by James and seems to be a response to Paul from maybe a community or person that was arguing against Paul. I think the major disconnect when you look at the scholarly view of the New Testament and the traditional view is probably related to the Christology of Jesus Christ. Christology meaning the idea that Jesus was God, the divine, and what that means. There seems to be a differing ideas of that and what it means across the New Testament. LDS scholar Greg Prince makes the argument, when, especially when he compares the evolving Gospels to the evolving nature of the first vision, is that this is a, a reflection of a theological understanding that was evolving over time. And he says, look at the order. Paul came first, and in Paul's Gospel, Jesus becomes Christ when he dies and is resurrected. And therefore, Paul doesn't talk about the life of Jesus Christ. Then comes Mark, and in Mark, Jesus becomes Christ when he's baptized. And therefore, Mark doesn't talk about anything before baptism, about his birth or anything like that. Then comes Matthew and Luke, and they put the Christology starting when he's born. And that's why the emphasis of the miracles related to his birth, the virgin birth, and this is included in the Gospels to show that he became Christ at his birth. Then comes John much later, and in John, Jesus is the Christ from the beginning of time, with the Logos being with God and the Logos being God and the Logos being born in the flesh as Jesus Christ. Acts 2 verse 36, Peter says, God hath made Jesus Lord. And I think this is the key to understanding some of this doctrine. We have Jesus, and then we have Jesus as the Christ or as Lord, and there's an event where God converts Jesus into Lord. God hath made Jesus Lord. There's also language like God hath raised up Jesus as Christ. This is sometimes called adoption, where Jesus might not have always been the Son of God, but he was adopted as the Son of God at some point. And just because it's evolving doesn't mean that it's not, it couldn't be a faithful view that Jesus didn't teach this for some reason, but that the Holy Ghost worked in the community of Christ as they learned and grew, and then these doctrines became better understood over time. And then another view of why there appears to be different Christology in these, these different New Testament writings, 
is that there were major competing sects and major branches of Christianity that didn't agree and had major differences in their doctrine. And we can see by the second century, there are very distinct groups, Marcionites, Ebionites, Proto-Orthodox, Gnostics. They all had different views of Christology. They all had different views of how important the Jewish religion was. You had different ideas of what teachings of Jesus were important, and they emphasized different aspects of Jesus' teachings or even the relative importance of his teachings. These were heated debates, and they were suing each other in civil court. They were misrepresenting each other on purpose. They were forging documents. This was kind of a battle to decide who was right and who would move forward. And then finally, the proto-Orthodox kind of won the day, and they had the Nicene Creed, and then they all agreed, and then the Caesar adopted Christianity. And then from then on, you have a very coherent, consistent form of Christianity. And it's unclear what happened from Jesus' time up until that second century where there's where it's really fragmented. And so there might be an idea that it started out clean and consistent and then grew into this into these fragments, or that it was never really very organized at all. And everyone kind of had different ideas and that evolved with more distinction in these different segments. And that might shed light into why Paul seems to be so different than the Gospels, where I used to think of Paul as kind of like the brains of the operation, and he came in, and the apostles had the basic story and narrative of Jesus, but didn't understand it all. And then Paul, through the Holy Ghost, and then through his intellect, he was able to flesh out these doctrinal views that that really became what we understand of Christianity. But then also, maybe it could have been that Paul had his own thing, and then Peter and James had their thing, and they didn't agree with each other. And and maybe even what we have that comes later is an effort to harmonize these or to tame Paul and to put these together somehow in a form that everyone could get along. A little bit of Paul's view, a little bit of this other Jewish view, and into something that everybody could get on board with together. I know it's a little blasphemous to be quoting from Last Temptation of Christ, but it's a great film. And there's a great scene with Harry Dean Stanton as Paul and Willem Dafoe as Jesus. And Paul is preaching, and he says, I used to be a sinner, the worst sinner. I did everything, horrid, drank, murdered. I killed anyone who violated the law of Moses. Then I was struck by a burning light, and a voice called to me, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you against me? Who are you? I said, Jesus, the voice said and he gave me my sight. I opened my eyes and I was baptized and became Paul. I bring the good news to every country. I bring this news about Jesus of Nazareth. He took on our sins. He was tortured, crucified, but three days later he rose again and was taken up to heaven. Death was conquered. Sins were forgiven, and the kingdom of heaven's now open to everyone. And then Jesus is in the audience. This is kind of an alternate universe. Jesus is listening in, and he says to Paul, Did you ever see this resurrected Jesus of Nazareth, I mean, with your own eyes? Paul, no, but I saw a blinding flash of light, and I heard his voice. Jesus, you're a liar. Paul, his disciples saw him. They were hiding in an attic with the doors locked when suddenly he appeared. Jesus, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. I never came back from the dead. I'm a man like everyone else. Why are you spreading these lies? Paul, what are you talking about? Jesus, I'm the son of Mary and Joseph who preached in Galilee. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were my disciples. 
We marched on Jerusalem. They brought me before Pilate, but God saved me. A little note here. This is like an alternate universe where Jesus doesn't actually die on the cross, and it's this fictional kind of exploration of what might have happened in a kind of fantasy scene. Back to the scene. Jesus says, Don't go around the world spreading these lies about me because I'll tell everyone the truth. Paul, look around you. Look at these people. Do you see the suffering and unhappiness in this world? Their only hope is the resurrected Jesus. I don't care whether you're Jesus or not. The resurrected Jesus will save the world. That's what matters. I created the truth. I make it out of longing and faith. I don't struggle to find truth. I build it. If it's necessary to crucify you to save the world, then I'll crucify you. And I'll resurrect you too, whether you like it or not. You started all this. Now it can't be stopped. You don't know how much people need God. You don't know what a joy it is to hold the cross, to put hope in the hearts of man. I'm glad I met you. Now I can forget you. My Jesus is much more powerful. Okay, so I hope I haven't offended everybody by including that little scene. I'm not saying this is reflective of Paul's mentality, but I think that it sort of gives insight into this idea of how there were competing schools of thought in the Christian movement. They were trying to figure it out. They were, they were doing their best to understand by the Holy Ghost what Jesus meant to them. You can see that understanding this view of the New Testament, that our concept of the creative apostasy is very difficult, not because there was an idea that there could be an apostasy, it's obvious that Christian doctrine evolved. Christianity in the year 100 was different than it was in the year 35 AD, and very different in the year 200 AD, and then 300 AD, and then again in the Protestant Reformation. It's different all along. But I think what's hard to say is that there was ever any point that was a real clear, consistent doctrine that we could say, this was the true church, this was the true doctrine, and this is what we're restoring. Because I think what Joseph is restoring is different aspects of the Christian movement that came from different points of time and different locations. He's pulling the best of it, but it's very difficult to say that Christ organized the clear, consistent, well-organized church that was teaching all of these same doctrines that we now have. John Dominic Crossan is a progressive Christian scholar who believes in Jesus but does not believe in a literal resurrection. And he emphasizes the aspect of Jesus' teachings of parables. He taught so much in parables, and Crossan believes that that gives us insight into and that his entire life and crucifixion and resurrection should be considered as a parable also. Marcus Borg uses logic where we think about the walk to Emmaus, where the two disciples after Jesus' death, we're depressed and walking together, and then Jesus shows up to walk with them. And they did not recognize Jesus at first. They talked to Jesus. Jesus says, why are you so depressed? They say, are you crazy? Do you not know what's going on? Jesus just died. And so now this great movement that we thought we were a part of, that we thought we were building the kingdom of God, it's all gone. And Jesus walks with them. And he expounds the scriptures, and then they stop and they break bread with him. And then in that moment of breaking bread, their eyes were able to see, and they knew it was Jesus. And then they say that beautiful, stay with us, abide with me to see eventide. So Marcus Borg is trying to teach us that there's something that's a little surreal about this story, where they don't recognize Jesus. Why wouldn't they recognize Jesus if he's walking with them? 
And so he thinks we're meant to take this a little bit more non-literally and that Jesus is walking with us and he comes into our life and that when we break bread with other Christians is a time that he manifests himself. That's a beautiful part of the story too. Marcus Borg was in a debate with a more conservative Christian scholar who believes in the literal resurrection. And this other scholar was saying, part of why I know that Jesus was resurrected literally is that I know he lives. I know that he lives in me. He lives with me. He walks with me. And Marcus Borg is responding to this and gently saying, I agree with you. He walks with me also. But I think if we took a video camera of you walking around with Jesus with you, we would only see you. We wouldn't see Jesus. And so when you say he walks with you, that is true, but not literally. An important idea in this is that the historical Jesus and the Christ of faith might be different, and that might be okay. It might be okay to separate the historical Jesus and to imagine the historical Jesus with everything that we know about him from the New Testament and his teachings and sayings, and then also picture the Christ of faith, the cosmic Christ who is resurrected and is alive in the world today and alive in our hearts and is a transforming power that enters into our life and can change the world. I think it's okay to disconnect those two just a little bit and picture them separately. And I think the language in the New Testament where they say that God made Jesus Lord, that that gives us permission to kind of say there's a historical Jesus and then maybe at some point that Jesus was transformed into the Christ. So what do I believe about this? I'm not saying my views are right, but I'm modeling my views and my testimony and my beliefs all through this as a way of saying I think it's okay to be a Latter-day Saint with beliefs the way that I do and follow Jesus Christ and follow the prophet and keep my covenants and that it's okay. I think the hardest part of this to understand is this concept that Jesus was fully human and fully divine. What does that even mean? We understand fully human. That makes sense. It's pretty intuitive. We also get a good idea of what it means to be fully divine, I think, and that it's completely different than what we would experience as being human. But what does it mean to be both fully human and fully divine? That I don't think we can wrap our heads around. And that's why I think it's okay to struggle with that idea. I think it's okay to not know. I think it's okay to maybe have different beliefs among us, as long as we're expressing our faith and our trust and our desire to align with the traditional definition of Jesus Christ as the literal Son of God and Savior of the world. I think to fully answer this, we first need to talk about what it means to be God, what God is. That's the aspect of this that I think is the hardest to answer. So let's get into that. Humans have been struggling with this question from the beginning of time. It's not just in our religion, it's in every faith and even those who don't have a prescribed religion. What is God? Is there a God? These are some of the core questions that humans have always had. I would now like to make a case for why we should believe in God or why we should attempt to believe in God. I've said before that you can't just choose to believe. If I told you to believe in God and you wanted to believe in God, I don't think you could just flip a switch and, and start believing in God. 
but I think we can orient ourselves to God and we can have faith in God even before we believe. And it's possible the belief can come later, but maybe it doesn't need to. I'm going to now get into a case of why we should believe in God. And this is going to be a little preachy, but that's okay. This is my podcast. I think when there's an acknowledgement of a power greater than oneself, it fosters a mindset of reverence, awe, appreciation, gratitude, humility, a softness, a feeling like you're part of something greater than yourself. I also think that a belief in God, not just from a humility and servitude aspect, it also comes with it a confidence and a power and a sustaining strength. Some people describe a belief in God as a warm blanket, a comfort, feeling loved. That time you felt unconditionally loved by a parent or spouse or a friend is replicating that feeling on a daily basis. God can be a friend when you're lonely, someone that you can talk to, consult with, get clear in your head and talk to. God can be seen as a perfect parent, a perfect father and mother. I'm a father and I wish I was a better father and I'm always trying to make up for the mistakes I've made as a father. But I hope that my children have a backup, that they have a perfect father that they can feel supported by and maybe make up some of my inadequacies. What would it be like if we all had faith that God's going to meet our needs? God's going to meet our financial, spiritual, and emotional needs. Then if we lived life without fretting about these constantly, and our job was just to go about doing good in the world, and I think that's how our covenants work, what if everyone in the world felt deeply loved by God in a deep, personal way and felt it on a daily basis? How would our world be different? I think that would be a great world. That's starting to look like the Zion that we're trying to build, the kingdom of God. I also don't think a belief in God is always a warm fuzzy. Ian Le Vanzant said, A man who is not accountable to anyone is a danger to himself. I think there's something good about a life of responsibility and accountability where you're feeling like you're accountable to something that's greater than yourself. Okay, so I don't know if I was successful in, in convincing you that it's important to try to believe in God, but if I did, then the next answer is, well, I still can't believe, sorry. It'd be nice to believe, but I just don't. And so let's look at some different views of God, some different ideas of God. Sometimes our concept of God gets so wrapped up in certain dogmas and doctrines that when we deconstruct, we just make it impossible to believe in God. Marcus Borg says, it matters greatly how we think about God. It can make the notion of God credible or very incredible, and it will very much affect what the Christian life is about. And then he talks about this first idea of God as a being that's separate from the universe but related and that he is sometimes intervening but it's usually only in scripture and only in the past, which is actually kind of cool about Mormonism that we we fixed that. In the Christian world, God is only intervening in the past and in our world, he's intervening in the present and he's involved in our church today. And maybe that brings up other problems like why is God doing this and not doing something else? But at least we took care of the problem that God's shut up and in, in history and no longer revealing anything to the world. And then this God is also usually connected to a lot of commandments and requirements, and we always know we can do better, and so it creates a kind of a guilt and a fear-based worldview. This view of God 
frequently deconstructs and leads people towards atheism. But then he talks about a more credible view of God, an all-encompassing reality, a spirit but not a distant spirit. The world is infused with this spirit. We are in God like fish is in water. God is like a womb. God is gracious. God is compassionate. God loves all of creation. God invites us into a deeper relationship that creates and sustains life. Quoting Acts 17, 28, He is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. We are swimming in God. Instead of a boundary keeper or justice enforcer or judgment giver, we should take God as graciousness and compassion. Rob Bell has this view of God. He quotes Genesis 28, 16, where Jacob wakes up from his dream where he is seeing God. The verse says, And Jacob awakened out of his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. God had been there the whole time, and he was never even aware of it. The divine presence is in all of life. The heart of Jesus' teachings is to alert us to the divine presence lurking in all humans, all of those unexpected situations where people have a need you can meet. And when you move towards another human being in love and grace and compassion, the divine being is there. I've come to open your eyes to the divine presence in every conversation and every interaction. The divine presence is already there. We are just waking up to it. We are surrounded by it. We are already sustained by it. We have this feeling of being interconnected with other humans. When one person suffers, we suffer. When there's injustice in the world, we feel it. When there's triumph in the world, we share in that joy. There's a feeling that we're all one, we're all connected. The divine, God, is that connective tissue, the glue that holds all that together. One body, the body of Christ, and the substance that connects it is God. Richard Rohr said, It's an inner experience, an inner dialogue, an inner presence, an inner awareness. And you don't get to that inner awareness by deciding whether God exists as if it's up to you to decide. Because even to decide God does exist is usually to limit it to your undoubtedly simplistic understanding of God in that moment. I think you simply need to be open to presence and to an inner dialogue that is initiated by that experience of presence. Catholic mystic priest John of the Cross says, God can never be known by the mind but only by love. That might seem to the modern or postmodern person to be a sentimental statement. I don't think it is. When you see how John of the Cross understands love, it's an inner movement, an inner flow, an inner feeling of giving and take. It's the feeling of being addressed and responding to that inner voice. That's that kind of loosey-goosey idea that like God is everywhere, but what does that mean? If God is everything, then God is nothing. And that's really hard for people raised in literal religion and people that aren't comfortable with abstract thinking and ambiguity. But let's give it a chance. Back to Richard War. But I think for those who say with comfort and calm that God does exist, there are invariably people who find themselves inside of that inner dialogue, and it's an inner dialogue that they know they are not initiating. They're responding. That's the key. Who is this initiator? Who is this addressing me? One feels oneself not just addressed, but addressed with respect and with love. That's the only existence of God that I think is worth proving or asserting. Next, let's look at a Jordan Peterson view of God, which is contrasting with this progressive Christian view of God that I think gives a more 
works-based or more accountability-based view of God. He's asked over and over if he believes in God and what God is, because he talks like an atheist and a scientist who doesn't really believe in supernatural concepts, and so it's a con little confusing what he means by God. He doesn't like the question, and he dodges it, but his most common answer is, it doesn't matter if I believe in God, I act as if God exists. And that's been my definition of faith, is that I act as if I know. I act as if I believe. I act as if this is going to work. That's what faith is, and it's outside of belief. He says, I act as if God exists. I try to do my best as a person who's obsessed with religious matters. And this is my summarizing of what he says is the power of believing in God. Imagine a being that represents the ultimate transcendent value, the highest good you can imagine. You don't have to believe it to imagine it. Imagine that it exists. And then imagine swearing your allegiance to that, promising to sacrifice whatever you need to sacrifice to align yourself with that highest good. That is such a powerful concept. That's our law of consecration. That's promising to give all of your heart, might, mind, and strength to the building up of the kingdom of God. Back to Jordan Peterson, God is the future to which we make sacrifices. Sacrifice is a contract with the future, a contract with the spirit of humanity. Another really interesting view of God comes from transhumanism. And I used to think this was kind of hokey, but I like it more and more the more I think about it. And I'm going to give my own little twist on this. But if we imagine the human race in 10,000 years, hopefully we haven't blown up the world or cause something catastrophic. But imagine that we, as a human race, get it together. And I like to kind of create this fantasy of, what if the LDS church converts the world? What if everyone becomes Latter-day Saints? We all are covenanting to create a heaven on earth, and there's no crime, there's no gossip, there's no jealousy. Of course, we'll never get it perfect, but I think we can get better and better and better. There's no selfishness. There's no taking advantage of each other. There's a commitment to marriage, commitment to family, commitment to community, commitment to eradicating poverty, righting the injustices of the world, eradicating racism and sexism. Imagine this really succeeding. Also imagine naturally the technological advancement that would come in another 100 years, 1,000 years, 10,000 years. You can start to imagine like a superhuman race that almost doesn't resemble us today and that really would resemble something very similar to what we might imagine God. And then throw in a lot of sci-fi stuff like there's cloning and, you know, some sort of technical way to make resurrection a reality. I know this is getting really nerdy and scientific, but just imagine where that could go. And then I think you can start to imagine a concept where some of these teachings that we're teaching about literally now, and that I'm talking about metaphorically, might become more literal in the future based on a possibility of the human race evolving into this compassionate superhuman species. I don't know. That might be useful to you when, you, when you're imagining God. Some people are fine just saying God is love. I think it almost doesn't matter exactly how we picture God, but I do think that it makes life a little better if we can have some sort of concept of God. 
now some more logic to try to bring this back full circle. We talked about this idea of two ants talking to each other to try to describe what humans do when humans think and relating that to two humans talking together about what God is and how God thinks. I don't think we can understand him perfectly. And then that leads to that quote that I've been saying that that an idea may not be absolutely true, but by rejecting that idea, it may take us further away from an absolute truth that does exist. So even though our idea of God might not be absolutely correct, by rejecting that idea, it might take us into a space that is more incorrect than we were by having that prior view of God. I like studying other religions, and I've learned a lot from Hinduism, and I may not be explaining this properly, but Hinduism believes in hundreds of gods, thousands of gods even, and some of them are very interesting. They have this Ganesha that's a half-man, half-elephant, and there's symbolism connected to it. He has big ears to hear prayers. He has many hands that symbolize a very competent and ability to help people. There's all these different gods, but Hindus actually believe that there's just one God that's kind of above these gods and that all these different gods they call avatars or expressions of this one God. So there's all these different gods, but I think you could say that they're monotheistic and that they believe that there's just this one God and that each of these representations are representing different aspects of this other God in a way that's more relatable because they believe in a God that's maybe a little bit more similar to what that Marcus Borg consciousness or interconnectedness or the world that we're swimming in. That's hard to have a relationship with, right? If you have a real abstract view of God, it's hard to say a prayer and speak to that God and imagine imagine receiving revelation back from that God and to feel loved by that God or to feel like that God cares about you. And so as humans, it's very useful to view God in a personification, and that's what in Hinduism is doing with these avatars. And, and when we say things like, God is revealed in Jesus Christ— I think that it's okay for us to see Jesus Christ and see even our view of Heavenly Father and of Heavenly Mother as kind of avatars, as kind of personifying maybe what might be an unexplainable view of God in a way that we can have a relationship with. The more I read, the more I fall in love with the historical Jesus. He's a radically cool person with extremely inspiring teachings and example. But that's not the end all for me. I love the historical Jesus, but then the Christ of faith, which is defined in the LDS church, how we view Jesus Christ, is a bigger concept to me. That's the power that's alive today, and that's who I can seek to have a relationship with. You see these pictures of Jesus, and obviously Jesus was not white. And you see these arguments, stop saying there's a white Jesus, he wasn't white, and yeah, we shouldn't use Jesus for white supremacy, obviously. But I think it's okay for me as a white person to view Jesus as white. I think if Jesus came to me, he would look like the Jesus in the Mormon art, the white European Jesus. If he came to a Chinese Latter-day Saint, I think he'd be an Asian Jesus. If he came to a black Latter-day Saint, he'd be a black Jesus. 
I hope that black Latter-day Saints have pictures of black Jesus in their house. James Taylor sings this beautiful song, Some Children See Him. He talks about how little children see Jesus in this way. Some children see him lily white, the baby Jesus born this night. Some children see him bronzed and brown. Some ch children see him almond-eyed. Some children see him dark as they. The children in, the, in each different place will see the baby Jesus' face like theirs, but bright with heavenly grace. That, to me, is behind the idea between the disconnect of the historical Jesus and the Christ of faith. And I think that's okay that the Christ of faith is, is a little bit different. We can think of Christ as an avatar, as the similar to the Hindu concept of avatars, and that he's a personification of an idea or a concept that may be hard for us to understand. And then also, Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother are also, we also can view as avatars in the same way, so that we can go full circle in that we can struggle with our belief in God and maybe deconstruct and maybe stop believing in God and then maybe start to view God in this different way that makes more intellectual sense to us. And then we can personify that concept with the idea of the LDS teaching of Father in Heaven and Mother in Heaven, and then we can have a relationship with that God, and then that kind of brings us full circle, right? Then we're back to kind of having an orthodox view of God. It's just that it's a metaphor behind a little bit different concept. And if you're viewing Father in Heaven and Mother in Heaven, some people, especially if you come from large Mormon families where they just seem busy and too many kids already, and they're worried about everyone else but me, I think it might be a good idea to try imagining yourself as an only child and with a personal Father in Heaven, personal Mother in Heaven that is doting just on you. So hopefully this is a viewpoint that can maybe lead us to a way to, to talk about God and relate to our fellow Latter-day Saints that are more traditional than we are in a way that's more authentic to ourselves, but also using shared speech and common speech that works for everyone. Getting close to wrapping up here, let me share my testimony of Jesus, and let's start with the Book of Mormon. Mosiah 15.1 And now, Abinadi I said unto them, I would that ye should understand that God himself shall come down among the children of men and shall redeem his people. And let's go to Alma chapter 7 to understand what that meant. And he shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, and this that the word might be fulfilled, which saith he will take upon him the pains and the sicknesses of his people. And he will take upon him death, that he may loose the bands of death which bind his people. And he will take upon him their infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy, according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. We believe in a God that came down to heaven and took on a body so that he could sacrifice for us and overcome death and sin. We believe that. But also, we believe this beautiful aspect that an important part of the reason why he needed to do that was so that he could learn how to succor his people. He needed to have a human experience to understand how to relate to us. He knows what it's like to overcome a drug addiction, an eating disorder. He knows the disappointment of failure. He knows what it's like to make a promise and not keep it and hate yourself for it. He knows faith crisis. He knows chronic migraine headaches. 
He knows loneliness. He knows what it's like to lose a spouse to cancer. He knows these things. We believe in a God that knows these things first person. And he took on these things so that he could relate to us, so that he could succor us. And whether it's literal or metaphorical, it doesn't matter, does it? This is what we're putting our faith in. I love Jesus' teachings. I love his use of parables, the prodigal son, prodigal of the sheep and the goats, beautiful teachings. The idea of grace and works, I think, is one of the human paradoxes. We need to love ourselves, and we need to be satisfied, and we need to be gentle with ourselves. But then we also have to never be satisfied in doing good and taking action to do, to do good in the world. And how do you balance those? And Jesus, I think, gives us great teachings of grace. He gives the parable of the workers where one shows up and works all day and one shows up the last hour and they both get the same reward. And then he gives us teachings of works about the Good Samaritan and the parable of the talents where we need to use our resources to build the kingdom of God, to make the world a better place. I think his gospel is a gospel of both grace and works. And I think we as a church have a good mix of that. Jesus Christ was a healer. He healed the sick and the blind, and he modeled to us how to heal each other and also the idea that we can be healed by God. When the woman with the issue of blood touches his robe and she's healed, and then he stops in the middle of all this frenzy just to make sure that she knows that he acknowledges that and that he loves her and that she didn't do that unlawfully. What a beautiful moment that is to illustrate the personal nature of the love of God. He was a champion of the marginalized. He wanted justice for the marginalized and the people that were not getting justice in, in that world, the poor, the sinners, women. He said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. He came to turn all the power hierarchies upside down. We inject Jesus into politics, both on the Republican side and the Democrat side in American politics, and it's so annoying. But I think that it's important that we build our views on Jesus Christ and that we take this viewpoint that we want to champion the marginalized and we want to make things right. If you're a Republican and have Republican ideas how to do this, and or you're a Democrat and have more liberal ideas how to do this, I think we can sort that out, but the important thing is that we're prioritizing the things that Christ taught us to prioritize. December is my favorite month of the year, and I like to read the New Testament and spend time reading devotional material about Jesus, and I think there's a time for devotional material and a time for intellectual material, and I love trying to get into the spirit of Christmas in December and think about Jesus more. It's very interesting that this has kind of come to me stronger in my post-Reconstruction phase than prior to my faith crisis in Reconstruction, in that I view Jesus differently, but he has a power in my life, and my belief in him is truly just as important and powerful as it ever was. If you ask me, is Jesus Christ literally the Son of God and literally the Savior, I would have a very hard time answering that question. I think if I took a lie detector test, I might lean on viewing things more metaphorically, but I also can say that I literally believe that he's the Savior and that I need his teachings 
to save me on a daily, weekly basis to help me orient myself to the right way of living. Jesus taught grace, but that grace was not always a warm, fuzzy thing that we receive grace all the time. It's also giving grace to others. Love your enemy. He changed eye for an eye to turn the other cheek. He taught works. He taught strict obedience. I don't believe the progressive Christian narrative that says he wasn't intensifying the law. He's, when he said, your scriptures say thou shalt not kill, but I say don't even get angry. I think he was intensifying the law, and I think he does ask of us strict obedience, strict discipleship, sacrifice to participate in this concept of redeeming the world and bringing forth a heaven on earth. So he asks a lot of us, but I don't think he wants us to feel guilty when we don't measure up. I think we're missing something if we're feeling guilty. We love him because he first loved us. His disciples loved him. The author of John calls John the apostle that Jesus loved. Peter was condemned to be crucified and asked to be crucified upside down out of respect and love for Jesus. When you read the New Testament, you feel the great love that people had for him, and they had crazy, fierce loyalty and discipleship to him. But it came out of this love. And so if we're feeling guilty, I think we've missed a step. First, the love comes into us. We feel his love. And then that expands us and gives us strength and gives us energy. And then we give that out to other people through our good works. And so if you're feeling like you're not measuring up or you're not keeping the commandments or you're not doing what you think you should, then I think the focus is, to how do I feel that love of God better? How can I connect to that feeling of love? And then I'll be full enough to be able to share that with others. Brennan Manning suggests that we should seek to understand and feel the love of Jesus as his disciples did. Ask the Father, for we know the Father through the Son. Go to him and ask him, Father, do you love me? Does he say, I'm so sick of you, all your false promises, your unrealized potential, your pettiness, your sins, you don't deserve my love. If so, then try again, and keep trying until you feel him say, Do you know how proud I am of you? Do you know how grateful I am for you? God loves you just as you are, not as you should be, because no one is as they should be. He's not waiting for us. We're the ones waiting for him. He does require a lot from us, and that's the point of religion, is to do some good in the world. But let's not feel guilty about it. If you're not there then focus on feeling his love, and then you'll get there. So I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in God. I'm not exactly always sure what that God is that I believe in. I do believe in the transcendent. I do believe in what Richard Rohr calls that other. There's been moments in my life when I've felt that interaction with that transcendent in a way that sustains me, and I long for those to become more frequent and I try to cultivate the conditions where those experiences can happen more frequently. Exodus 3, 4. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote a poem that's connected to that verse. Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. So Moses was looking for him. Moses was seeking. He turned aside to see. He turned his head to a different direction to see. 
And at that moment, God revealed himself to him. I don't think this is a fundamentalistic, literal kind of thing. I think it's more in the Richard Rohr mystic sense of experiencing God. And maybe that's how Jesus experienced God, and maybe that's how Joseph Smith experienced God, and, and maybe that's how we can experience God. I do think he's there, and when we seek him, we find him. I think he's all around. I think earth is truly crammed with heaven. When we seek him, when we seek her, we find her, we find him. Some look at the blackberry bush and see blackberries. That's fine. No judgment. But I think if we're looking and we have those moments where we see God's image in the blackberry bush, in the face of the people that serve us and that we serve, I think that's a gift when that happens. And I think cultivating that and creating conditions in our hearts and in our mind where those experiences can happen and creating a reverent environment where those experiences can happen that makes life sweeter and more abundant. So that's what we wanted to accomplish today. I hope that if you came into this as an atheist or not believing in God or not thinking that Jesus Christ was relevant to you anymore, I hope that you have some ideas here to think on and that can lead you to putting Christ in your life in a way that's more more intellectually authentic to you and a way of understanding God that's more authentic to you and hopefully a way of interacting with your religion that's more intellectually sound and meaningful to you. And I hope that if you don't have any issues with those things and that you believe traditionally that you can forgive me for speaking in a way that that you may seem is not as faithful. I love the historical Jesus. I love the Jesus Christ of faith that my LDS church teaches me to have faith in. And these are both very meaningful and important to me. And so with that, let's end this. And thank you for listening to the end. And please join us next time.